0: NOVA Ukraine and UNICEF USA Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. NOVA Ukraine and UNICEF USA are partnering to support children and families devastated by the war in Ukraine. Together, they will be providing life-saving assistance where it matters most by providing emergency access to water, delivering health, hygiene, and education supplies, establishing blue dot centers to concentrate delivery of emergency services, and more. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting give.novaukraine.org/unicef. Your donations are 100% secure and tax deductible and your contribution will help support relief on the ground in Ukraine. That's give.novaukraine.org/unicef. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast
1: from the Commonwealth Club. Well, it is great to be here in person. Great to see you all. Uh, if, if I say anything out of school or out of turn, it's been a couple of years since I've really been active in in-person events. I don't know how long those excuses go for us, but uh, I have no doubt this is going to be a riveting conversation. So great to be here in person and to have Congressman Khanna with us, someone who's been a great leader in the private sector, someone who's had a very impressive career prior to elected service and obviously you're a part of such important dialogues and conversations and policies going on right now in dc we're thrilled to have you here today
2: ahmad thank you uh, for moderating this you're doing a fabulous job leading the silicon valley leadership group about a year and a half and you've already had a major impact on our region and thank you to the commonwealth club it's an honor really to be here
1: well thank you roe and we are we are thrilled to be here with that, I will jump right in. We want to focus on the book, "Dignity in the Digital Age," and my first question is: Is why you wrote the book? And I also want to add that the title "Dignity" is a heavy word. It's a multi-layered word. Speak to us about the title as well.
2: The market cap uh, in my district and the surrounding areas, as you know, Ahmad, is eleven trillion dollars. Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn. To put that in perspective, it's not that market cap is analogous to GDP, but the entire GDP of Russia is $1.6 trillion, $11 trillion. And as wealth has piled up in places like Silicon Valley, in New York, Austin, large parts of the country have been totally left out of globalization. They've seen jobs leave. They've seen towns decimated. They've had to have kids buy one-way tickets out. And the central question that I was asking in the book and exploring is how do we create economic opportunity for nearly half the country that has been left out of the opportunities for wealth generation and economic security in a modern economy. And dignity is about having the opportunity to contribute, both as an economic actor and as a citizen. And one of the arguments I make is people feel that they don't, often have that chance in a digital age, and how do we make sure that it's not just redistribution post-production, but actually giving people, empowering people to succeed in a new economy?
1: Well, I think when you talk about the digital age, you talk about empowering people to succeed. One thing I found very interesting, you had a Milken Institute study that talked about essentially technology, jobs, economic growth, beyond Silicon Valley, right? I don't see Silicon Valley as a a zero sum economy or a zero sum game, although, of course, my interests are, are very parochial in that. I want to see our region thrive and succeed. How do you begin to address that concern? You have your district. You obviously want to see the 17th district thrive and succeed. But your book also speaks to taking technology jobs and innovation and economic prosperity to rural areas nowhere near your district. Is that incongruent? Uh, Are you trying to to do both? Can you speak to that?
2: I don't think it's a zero sum game. I mean, obviously we want innovation, uh, job creation in Silicon Valley in the 17th district. But I think one of the big challenges in our district is making sure we have more housing so that you don't have gentrification so people can afford to come here and live here, making sure that the service workers around the tech economy are paid a fair wage. Uh, so you don't have people in San Jose that have 60% of their income uh, going to rent. So we have our own challenges in Silicon Valley. Yes, job creation is is one of them and remaining innovative, uh, but also uh, basic equity in the digital uh, ecosystem with, that I know Silicon Valley Leadership Group and others are uh, focused on. But that doesn't mean that it's okay for all of the economic growth, innovation uh, to be in a few areas in the country. One of the studies I cite uh, that I think Brookings or uh, the Rob Atkinson's group, the Technology Foundation, did, is say that there are five cities in this country that have about 90% of the digital service jobs. That's not sustainable. We're going to have 25 million digital jobs by 2025. And those opportunities need to be distributed so, you don't have to leave your hometown to have good opportunities. And these jobs aren't, by the way, coding at Google or coding at Facebook. They're in manufacturing, they're in retail, they're in healthcare. Almost every business, it's a cliche, is going to have a technology component. What are we doing in places around the country so that young people there have the same opportunities as young people growing up and going to Homestead High School or Cupertino High School? That's the thesis of the book, uh, not one to diminish. Uh, Silicon Valley, but one to say, how do we get other parts of the country participating in some of that opportunity?
1: So you would say as Silicon Valley thrives, our companies scale, we continue to innovate, our economies become more uh, equitable and continue to grow. So do opportunities for rural communities less connected to Silicon Valley to benefit from that largesse, or are they separate issues?
2: Well, I think we have to be intentional in several of the companies. I'll give you a few pilot projects. I was just in Claflin, uh, a HBCU in South Carolina, uh, a a brilliant school. And Zoom uh, took the initiative to uh, make an investment in the curriculum there. And I met uh, this really bright young woman who's going to stay in South Carolina. and She has almost a six-figure job working at Zoom. Now, that's a win-win. That's a win for Zoom in our area. It's a win for the HBCU. It's looking at beyond the horizon of where there's talent. Uh, We we don't have a person or community to write off in a globally competitive environment. Uh, Similarly, in uh, rural communities, Google is working with community colleges to set up a curriculum where you need a nine-month credential uh, to then be able to get a good-paying job, and that helps these companies and it helps uh, those communities. But we have to be intentional in looking at how do we develop that talent? How do we have a public-private partnership? How do we have the empowerment economically of areas that uh, have had job loss? And how do we bring also production back in this country? I think the two things from COVID that I think everyone sort of realizes is one, uh, every person needs to be participating in some way in digital life and the digital economy and that these things, people are now on Zoom, they saw the importance of the digital age. So much of Silicon Valley, you know, 40% appreciation in wealth with the increasing digitalization of the economy. So people get it, that they want young people, they want folks in their communities to have these opportunities. Second thing I think we learned is we need to produce more things in America. Uh, There's supply chain issues. The fact that we couldn't produce masks was an issue. We shouldn't just have offshored all of our production. So we have an opportunity, I think, post-COVID for the economic revitalization of places that have been left out over the last 30, 40 years from economic prosperity. And that, to me, is critical to stitch our country back together.
1: I think that's very well said. And one thought I had, and in, in, uh, certainly there are multiple instances in your book, where I'm left um, wondering, you know, about Roe as a... Uh, evangelist for Silicon Valley or, you know, Roe as someone who as a representative obviously is trying to take this technology and innovation and economy to all pockets of the country where folks are less fortunate. My thesis is that I believe we're entering a new era of corporate citizenship where our leading technology companies can actually benefit and realize greater revenue and economic success from being better corporate actors. You mentioned Zoom and Eric Yuan, all the wonderful work he's done with HBCUs around keeping us going through COVID, which wouldn't be possible without that technology. Do you fundamentally believe that there is an opportunity for our business leaders in Silicon Valley to have this positive impact? Is that where you believe the future is going, or do you see it going potentially elsewhere?
2: I completely agree with you. You know, one of the speeches I'm most uh, inspired by is Bobby Kennedy in 1964. He talks about uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant. It's a Brooklyn community in uh, New York. And Kennedy talks about how are we going to have economic redevelopment in that community, and he helps set up the economic redevelopment. And he says it's not just going to be the federal government or the state government. It's going to be government, but it's going to be community leaders, and it's going to be the private sector, and working together, we're going to create economic opportunity. We need to have that kind of a mission in this country. If we want to have economic revitalization, that means calling on business leaders uh, to think about their uh, responsibility in helping see talent and in helping invest in talent and looking for, in non-conventional places, partnering with federal investment, partnering with local community leaders. This can be a mission that involves all Americans and asks Americans to help rebuild the country. So it's not just, okay, here are a bunch of politicians saying go do this. So uh, I believe technology companies uh, can be and, and will be part of the solution. You know, every congressman wants their line added into the State of the Union. Mine didn't, mine didn't make it in, but I, uh, I said President Biden should uh, call on the country to, to say by 2025, we're going to have a one, one million uh, black and Latino Americans having digital jobs and one million rural Americans having digital jobs and then convene Uh, HBCUs, land-grant universities, tech leaders to help make that happen. Uh, A lot of that can happen just through leadership uh, by uh, civic leaders, government leaders in the private sector working together.
1: And when you talk about the rural communities, because that's a a thread throughout the book, is it about assets that aren't being fully utilized? Can you speak to how you became uh, very engaged around helping those communities?
2: Well, I, I don't view it as helping as much as I view it as partnering, because I got invited to, to Appalachia and, and by Hal Rogers. I thought, you know, you're, you're going to have this Indian-American guy go from this liberal Bay Area district down to Trump country uh, talking about technology. And I went to Paintsville, Kentucky, and they know everything about technology. They're saying that they're co- they want to diversify their economy. They want money coming in, not just going out. They understand we're having a digital transformation. They want these opportunities. So what you get is extraordinary work ethic, uh, ambition, hunger to, to, to participate. And then, by the way, th- these jobs are not that different than the jobs some of them have done. I start the book writing about Alex Hughes. He says that we know how to make things. Well, Alex Hughes is making refrigerators today. He's just making refrigerators with smart appliances and uh, smart electronics. And that is a skill that he learned in a nine-month course uh, in Appalachia, that interact, and uh, the federal government helped fu- help support. So the the point is that you can get extraordinary talent. I'd uh, rather those jobs be in Appalachia than in China or or elsewhere, uh, and that uh, it's taking advantage of talent. Often, uh, the cost of living differential uh, makes it uh, in the company's interest to cultivate that talent uh, in places where people are, and and you don't want to uproot people from the community you know one of the things i i was just in galesburg i've gotten to travel a fair amount uh, this last week uh, uh, ever since i wrote the book some people have invited me and uh, just having uh, conversations and i met with this group of folks who were at the maytag uh, plant in galesburg illinois and their story was uh... was so sad because in two thousand four when the plant went they said it didn't just destroy our jobs it destroyed our community our family They used to celebrate Christmas together. They knew uncles and aunts and grandparents in that plant. Everyone knew each other. It was a family. And they said President Obama spoke about it, uh, famously in the 2004 keynote speech, but nothing has changed in our community. The jobs haven't come back. Our kids are still leaving. We as a country have to focus on places like Galesburg, Illinois, places like the west side of Chicago, places like... Dayton, Ohio, white and black, Latino that have faced deindustrialization, that have not been winners in globalization, that have been the victims, I would argue, of failed policy for the last 40 years, not intentionally failed, but policies that have not taken sufficient account of place. And we owe it to them to have a intentional plan, bringing business, government, civic sector together for economic revitalization.
1: Why now? Was this an inflection point coming out of COVID, you know, something potentially positive, seeing an opportunity, or was your motivation for writing this book now that you saw, as you, you mentioned, 40 years of failed policies that you might be trying to address? What, talk about the timing.
2: Well, I thought COVID was a unique moment because suddenly everyone went on remote work. There was a recognition that you didn't just have to have everything agglomerated, uh, in Silicon Valley. For the longest time, people said everything has to be in these clusters. And this was a forced experiment that seemed to work, that people could be rooted in their community and still contribute. Uh, And so that thought said, well, maybe this gives us some momentum to have economic revitalization in places that have been left out uh, and to be intentional uh, about that. And then technology is something now that everyone realized. They realized the consequences of the digital divide if their kids couldn't go on Zoom or do their homework. They realized the consequences of it in in terms of the divide of those who could work remotely and those who were doing physical labor and exposing themselves to a higher risk uh, of COVID. One of the points I make in the book is two-thirds of jobs in this country are not digital jobs or behind a laptop. They are physical jobs. And the disparity there is also stark you know, you, it, it, there's something wrong in our society where, and I, you know, don't say this to disparage Amazon, but where you can make trillions of dollars, and I buy from Amazon all the time, and you can benefit if you are a executive there, a software engineer there, consumer there, maybe the richest, one of the richest companies ever in human history. But then if you're working at the warehouse, you say, well, I'm only making 15, 16 bucks, and my life is worse off than the 30 bucks my father made or mother made at a factory plant. And by the way, now instead of that mean boss, I've got an algorithm as a boss that's even worse. You know, where, where is the dignity for me? And I think we are not sufficiently aware. And one of the reasons we have such resentment, polarization, anger in this country is not out of an intentional, uh, in, in, in intentional sort of uh, cruelty uh, of, of those of, who have won in globalization, but a neglect, a drift, and there hasn't been sufficient attention paid to those who have not won. And I don't think this is just an American phenomenon. Same thing in England, where you have the south of England prospering, north of England having deindustrialization. Same thing in Belgium. I think globally, we have the winners and losers of globalization, and we have to figure out what do we do so that disparity doesn't exist.
1: Well, you mentioned Amazon as one company, and I've I've heard you speak about this. When you talk about polling, if you were to poll uh, an an approval rating of Amazon versus uh, Congress and your colleagues, I think the latest numbers I've seen, it's in the 70s, right, for Amazon and 17, 18 percent, right, for Congress. Why is that? Does that contradict with what you just shared? Or are they completely separate issues when you look at? Uh, trust and uh, a benevolent reputation.
2: Well, when's the last time Congress ever sent you something to your doorstep within 24 hours? I mean, maybe (laughs) right after the stimulus check or something, (laughs) uh, you could pull right then. But the the point is that, you know, like I said, I use Amazon. Most people use Amazon. It's a convenient service. Uh, There's no doubt it was an extraordinary innovation in logistics and uh, in providing products at a cheap price and helping some of the small businesses expand their markets. But, I mean, obviously there are issues with it, and antitrust to make sure they don't discriminate against sellers. But the point is, when people are asked, okay, do you approve of Amazon, they think, well, has Amazon made my life better or not? And many people, it's made their life better. I don't think they're thinking, well, what happened uh, to towns that face deindustrialization and are now working in warehouses at, at Amazon? And maybe they don't even blame Amazon for that, right? Maybe the problem is not just Amazon, but it's federal policy, that we still have a $7.25 minimum wage law, that we don't have collective bargaining, that we don't have uh, the ability to raise pay for the service sector. So, you know, I mean, part of it could be Amazon, part of it could just be a failure of policy. But what it has led to is a whole generation of working class Americans who don't just believe, but are factually accurate in thinking that their life is worse off than their parents. And that contradicts the American dream. And we have to figure out how we address that. And one of the points I make in the book is you can't talk about dignity in the digital age if the working class and those who are not behind computers are totally left out.
1: Well, we talk about economics and economic output, economic economic impacts, but you also write about civic fabric or or social institutions maybe you know you're talking about people getting along and living together well and those seem to be issues that aren't really uh, i would say correlated or certainly not happening if you look at the political system or if you just look at those towns that you mentioned right on the one hand of course economic opportunity has eluded many of these communities and those are issues that we need to address But on the same front, when you talk about social fabric, I don't know if there do you get the sense maybe when you have a congressman from Tennessee who might have a polar opposite opinion from yours on social issues and so many other items. Is there a willingness to work together and build a social fabric? Or is it purely economic? What can we do to improve jobs and further interest today?
2: Well, I think the two are connected. Uh, Obviously, there are deep divisions in this country on so many issues, on issues on reproductive rights, on LGBTQ plus equality, uh, on racial justice, on voting rights, on issues of deep fundamental importance in what we believe is a just society, issues that that have deeper meaning than just economics. But that said, uh, the economics may be a Way that we can find some common ground. There is an emerging consensus in this country that we shouldn't have just let our production go offshore, millions of jobs that left when going to China. There is an emerging consensus that we ought to be investing in leading industries of the future in technology to create those jobs in the United States, across the United States. That's why the COMPETES Act, which I led with Senator Schumer and Todd Young, uh, Indiana Senator, and Mike Gallagher, Representative Republican from Wisconsin, uh, passed the Senate with 69 votes, including Mitch McConnell, uh, and passed the, the the House and is one of the few things that hopefully, I'm on the conference committee, will get to the president's desk. So if you have a message of we've got to invest in the reindustrialization of America, we've got to invest in creating high-paying jobs, we've got to do this to make sure we lead the 21st century, I think that is a message that can cut across some of the ideological, geographical, racial divisions in this country. Is it sufficient? No. Is it a start? Yes.
1: Because my take, going back to the first question, is that for you and your thesis, dignity is beyond economic. Uh, it's about respect in and, uh, you know, perhaps another definition. And I think that is a real challenge when we're trying. You talk about building the civic fabric, this social fabric we have such polarization. Are you hopeful that we can see, whether it be through competes or other opportunities to work together, we can see more bipartisan progress? Or is that Pollyannish?
2: I think it depends on how we can see better understanding as Americans. Uh, If you were to replace the entire Congress and Senate today and have people reelected from their constituencies, I think it would be just as polarized. The problem isn't that the Senators and Congress people are polarized. It's that the actual constituencies are polarized. So how do we create more uh, mutual understanding? How do we create more joint work? You know, that's one of the things that I've talked about in this book. When when manufacturing did well, the coal towns did well, the railroad towns did well. When Silicon Valley does well, it's not necessarily the case that Youngstown, Ohio, or Orangeburg, South Carolina does well. How do we create more connectivity? In a digital economy, so that joint work leads to joint prosperity, so that people are working with each other outside the silos, and that can all help in uh, in, in creating more understanding. But at the at the root of it, of course, is uh, figuring out how we talk with respect to to each other as Americans. Again, uh, respect, figuring out how we build a multiracial, multiethnic democracy that has sufficient commonality and respect for our history and uh, in, in understanding, though, of our differences and respect for that. That's not easy. No, if, if it were easy, someone else would have done it. No one has done it in the history of the world. Uh, I say this, and I always get uh, criticized on Twitter from the Canadians, and they take real offense that I'm saying America is going to be the first multiracial, multiethnic democracy in the world. And I don't mean offense to the Canadians, but they're 80-some percent white. I mean, we're 60 percent white, non-Hispanic. When my parents came to the country in the 60s, post the 1965 Immigration Act, immigration to this country was 90 percent European. It's today 15 percent European. What we're trying to do in this country is very, very difficult. And I think that's partly what explains some of the polarization in the country.
1: Well, shifting gears, uh, social media, which I thought was a fascinating (laughs) topic that you touch on in the book, you wrote about a, a kind of PBS uh, for, for social media. Can you speak to that and share with the audience what you mean? That that seems to me is pretty futuristic and, and hard to do, and I'd love to learn more about the idea.
2: Sure. I mean, the idea is that when we have a town hall forum like this, you have reasonable rules, reasonable time-place restrictions. Uh, people can't just come yell and uh, well, we'll see what the Commonwealth Club allows, but they probably can't just insult me gratuitously in the way that they could on social media. So the point is, social media has its place. Anger has its place. Uh, resentment has its place. You know, when George Floyd happened, I, I was glad that there were forums on Facebook and Twitter where people were exp- expressing anger and frustration and not just politeness. But the point is, not all conversation has to be that way. There can be spaces for conversation that uh, emulate the town hall, the, the cornerstone of American democracy, and so I say, you know, local communities like you have next door could create spaces for that type of conversation. Facebook could create uh, that type of forum for every member of Congress. Have a town hall on Facebook, but you have certain rules, uh, just like you would in a town hall in the uh, in, in, in in a physical space. How do we create digital institutions? that emulate the best of the public sphere in the physical world. And that's something I think we have to do a lot of work on. Uh, one of the things I make point, uh, points I make in the book is after the printing press, there was a 100 years of war. Uh, Erasmus, was, who was the champion of the printing press, turns out to be a huge critic because he says all these pamphlets that are being uh, published uh, are blatant lies, and they're leading to violence. And it wasn't by accident that the printing press turns out to be this thing that we celebrate. It was humanity working for 100 years to build the institutions of liberal democracy that allow the printing press to be seen as now a force for for good, Um, unless you're in some very few states that want to ban books. But the the point is that we have to do the same thing with digital media. We have to do the same thing. We have to intentionally create institutions that allow the technology to be used for uh, the... um, the the, the public good and public deliberation, and my vision of it is to have a messy public sphere where you have things like PBS or local community forums, but then you also have places like Facebook and Twitter. It's heavily influenced by one of the great philosophers who I was honored blurbs the book, Jurgen Habermas, who writes about ideal speech conditions as leading to legitimate policy and truth. But it, for those who read Habermas's later work, it's in Facts and Norms, he understands that that ideal is not possible in a messy democracy. But what we need to do is create institutions that uh, approximate that ideal while having many discursive spaces. And that's the, the vision of what I think uh, we ought to be doing in the digital sphere.
1: And in that uh, digital sphere, you see an opportunity to improve humanity. I mean, when you're talking about this civic fabric and trying to to weave that better, is that an example of where technology can be an asset to do so?
2: Yes, and it already has been, right, in some ways. I mean, think about the situation in Ukraine. I would argue that that's been a place where the social media uh, has been a very positive
1: force. I mean, Crypto and digital assets. And
2: the Dow that Zelensky has set up with cryptocurrency, allowing him to get money to people who need it. Uh, the, the fact that he's been able to tell his story online and be able to show the bravery and courage of mm-hmm. the Ukrainian resistance. So there, I would argue that post-George Floyd social media was a very positive force. The, the Black Lives Matter movement it was positive, with the Me Too movement it was positive. So th- th- these technologies have positive uh, influences, but they also have very destructive influences. Uh, such as the fact that teenagers on Instagram uh, want to uh, often have suicidal thoughts because of what they're seeing and, and no one is doing anything about it, uh, or the fact that QAnon's growth was on social media because they were directly targeted by these companies. And I guess uh, my view is a balanced view. It is to say that technology can be at its best empowering to, to give voice to people who ordinarily don't have it. You don't have to be a member of Congress to say, the uh, interesting things. In fact, there are thousands of young people who are going to have much more viral posts than anything I'll say today. That's a democratizing impact. But it also can be dangerous in its misinformation, in the incitement to violence, in the incitement, I would argue, of January 6th. So how do we uh, have well-crafted rules uh, that shape a digital sphere that allows for the benefits of technology without the negatives? That's that's our challenge.
1: You look at January 6th I mean, I, I worked on the Hill. Um, I watched that with complete and utter shock. Uh, I have an understanding of how well trained the Capitol Police are uh, in my mind, and I think for a lot of black Americans, a lot of people of color, there's a racial element that you're very honest with yourself and you see that and you ask yourself if they look different. Would the situation have maybe not escalated or would people have been treated very differently? and it makes you think not so much about technological tools but about what's being fomented in terms of racism in terms of conditions in some of these marginalized communities that have helped elect people that might look the other way with decisions like that being made now that's not a technology issue per se it's an issue that's very deep and multi-layered what are your views or what what do you think when you look at the root causes of January 6th or that type of foment and, and incitement. Can technology help solve that?
2: Well, I, I think you're absolutely right to say that there are deeper issues involved, and that is how do we inspire people to believe in a multiracial, multi-ethnic America, that to the extent that people believe in American exceptionalism, I would argue that that's the core essence of Uh, the American project that is exceptional as Frederick Douglass in Composite Nation articulates that we are going to be a nation of all nations. Uh, And there are people who resist that vision uh, and there are people who are uncomfortable with that vision. I believe that there are a small minority of uh, uh, Americans, but I think that their uh, voices are uh, obviously ones that have to be confronted and that we have to provide an alternative uh, on that. And that's an issue that I don't think technology itself can Solve it's a it's a question of uh, who we are as Americans, uh, and then there are the questions of the economic uh, dislocation because I think uh, I don't think that's a direct link to racism, uh, but it can create the conditions for racism uh, when you have economic uh, dislocation uh, and a lack of economic opportunity. But technology, I think, can make things slightly better or slightly worse. In January 6th, they made things worse. I mean, you had basically the plotting online on some of these platforms where people were talking about assassinating the vice president, then Pence, and these social media companies didn't report it, and they didn't have any obligation under Section 232 to report it. Well, that's a problem with the law. Uh, we shouldn't allow the incitement of violence on these platforms. We sh- that's even under Brandenburg. So technology isn't going to magically make us a multiracial, multi democracy. But technology, the distributing technological opportunity economically and having better public forums can help in that process as opposed to hinder that process.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, the the nuance here uh, and knowing that leaders in D.C. see the conditions on the ground. You know, you often hear people focusing on the technology companies, often on the other side of the aisle, instead of focusing on the conditions and actions that we saw, which uh, I think is very unfortunate. But maybe turning to that political sphere and progressive capitalism, uh, how do you define a progressive capitalist?
2: Progressive capitalist is someone who believes in innovation, in entrepreneurship, uh, in the value of of markets. Uh, the uh, you, you believe that you know the United States Congress probably shouldn't be the board of directors of Apple Computers. You wouldn't have innovation if. 435 members of Congress, given our technological knowledge, had to approve every decision. Uh, but you believe that there ought to be state intervention and regulation, that it's not okay for all the wealth to just be accumulating in a few places with a few people and for the state to just say, well, that's the market, tough. That for communities to be destroyed and people to say, well, that's the market, tough. For people to lack health care and education and folks to say, well, that's tough. They were born to the wrong parents, to the wrong family. That there has to be the role of the state in uh, shaping markets in ways so that markets ultimately serve the common good. And uh, it's a society, a democratic society, that defines markets, that defines the appropriate regulation, that defines the appropriate role for the state. Uh, And my criticism of neoliberalism was it was this absolute faith in the market with a very limited role for the state, and I think that there is a role for the state, particularly on health care, on education, on place-based policy.
1: Well, we have touched on a lot, and as you can see, I've got this list of questions that have come in from folks in the audience and That's online. Great. active audience. So I, I'm going to do my best to try and touch on as many of these questions and continue this dialogue, which I, I find fascinating. I hope folks in the audience...
2: Yeah, yeah, regulated the Commonwealth Club is? They don't even let folks stand up and go well, on. Well,
1: <laughs> when you hear this question, the, the regula- regulatory <laughs> concerns might go away. It's, uh, your vision requires major collaboration... And drive at the national level. Uh, this person says, with a weak president and a dysfunctional Congress, how will this happen?
2: Well, I support the, the, the president. The president's been de- dealt a very tough hand. He uh, assumed office with 40% of the country, I'm not thinking he's a legitimate president. I'm not sure. Uh, in in our history when that's happened. I mean, even Lincoln, I think, was recognized as the legitimate president. So that's a very unusual circumstance. He was elected in the midst of a pandemic, and then we had the Delta variant and Omicron variant. Uh, you've had Russia invade a sovereign country. So, you know, the president, I think, is doing his best under very difficult circumstances for the country. But I take the basic premise of the question, which is, To do the types of things I'm talking about requires an energetic national vision, a sense of national purpose, a sense of national mobilization. When we have done it as a country, it has been FDR uh, inspiring the country to respond to World War II. It has been Lincoln inspiring the country with the Land Grant or Homestead Act. It has been Kennedy inspiring us to get to the moon. And how we create that sense of national purpose national urgency that can unify Americans is a, is a challenge. And without that, you're not going to get the momentum in Congress uh, to be able to do it. Uh, I would argue that the hollowing out of the middle class, the move away of production uh, is something that ma- Americans now see, that this is a national purpose. And the fact that Americans want to lead, they don't want that lead to go to China or someone else, that can be the beginnings of constructing a, a vision of national purpose that inspires Americans. But without that, I agree with the questioner that it's very, very difficult uh, to, to get something done. And I would argue the reason it's so difficult is we haven't had that clarity of national purpose for, for a while in this country. Uh, arguably, President Bush could have done it after 9-11, but there are unique moments where you have that opportunity as a leader to do that.
1: Another question for you. How are you received in conservative areas? This is from YouTube.
2: Well, I'm received very well because I'm relatively unknown. <laughs> as, you know, I, I have the benefit of not having had, you know, as, for example, our vice president, who I respect from our state, every, every day there are 25 negative media articles about her. And so when you, when you don't, when you have that, it's very hard to break through. Uh, my, one of my advantages, people don't know much about me. So when they meet me, they, they're more open-minded. The challenge is how do you do that in a media environment once you start getting painted a certain way by the media? And that I think makes it harder in a, in an ironic sense, the higher one's profile is the harder it is, uh, to break through, uh, and create those authentic relationships.
1: Well, when you speak about authentic relationships, uh, I mean, I, I have I've been fortunate to witness how effective you are in D.C., how effective your staff is. I think you honestly make uh, a concerted effort to work with folks on the other side of the aisle. Do you believe that that is reciprocated in an authentic way?
2: Well, well the people who I've worked with, yes. With Mike Gallagher and Todd Young, um, yes. I mean, I, I think that the... Uh, on those issues, uh, it it has been, but the challenge has been the uh, that there is elements of the Republican Party, you know, that don't re- recognize still Biden's legitimate election. Uh, you know, you look at someone like J.D. Vance, right? I mean, he's someone who wrote "Hillbilly Elegy." I didn't agree with all of it; it was a little bit too self-reliant in its message. But I thought it was a very solid book overall. I praised it. Uh, And he worked with Steve Case in Rise of the Rest to have economic development in communities that were left out. So I could see myself in a traditional way uh, potentially having worked with him. But he's on television now talking about how we can't have Afghani refugees because if you're in a mall and you have an Afghani refugee, they may blow the whole mall up. So, you know, how do you work with someone who's gone to that level of extreme in rhetoric and that is the challenge that uh... uh that there are elements of the republican party uh, that uh... have really taken the rhetoric to a, a whole different level uh... in ways that contradict just the fundamental values of what it means to be american it's not arguing over spending or how do we get something done or taxes uh... it's it's rejecting people based on uh... their their national origin or their religion And that's something that I can't ever uh, compromise on.
1: What's the future of the Republican Party? You have a a figurehead in the former president who is. is, we talk about social media and other uh, forums, uh, clearly someone who has quite a following. Uh, And you talk about J.D. Vance and, you know, folks that uh, are are the future in, in many respects. Can you speak to where you see the party going?
2: Well, I have been wrong about Donald Trump uh, so many times that, uh, you know, I'm probably not the best person to ask. I didn't think, I thought, I got elected in 2016. My brother says it's the year anyone could have gotten elected uh, (laughs) because Trump got elected. Uh, But, you know, I was more confident in Hillary Clinton winning the election than I was in my own election. I I could not, I didn't conceive that she would lose uh, the election. And then I thought 2020 wasn't going to be as close as it turned out to be. And then I thought, surely, after January 6th, uh, Donald Trump was done, that, that, that there was no future after two impeachments and after January 6th. But I've been wrong three times. Look, Donald Trump is stronger today in the Republican Party than he's ever been. And if I were to predict today, uh, he'd be the nominee for the Republican Party, unless something dramatically changes. So, uh, you know, I've learned my lesson, which is that we should not uh, underestimate uh, him or, or or the hold he has on that party.
1: How does that comport with the larger vision we've spoken about today, where we have an opportunity to to bring opportunity to so many areas of the country via digital opportunity, as you speak about, that have been marginalized? Does that uh, separate these political and social issues from the economic progress that you speak about, or is it all interwoven? and with uh, uh, a person like Trump or leaders like Trump, impossible to achieve.
2: Well, one of the things we can do is acknowledge that the 2016 election was a wake-up call to the uh, political class, that uh, it was in part about jobs having left, communities having been uh, desolated, uh, main streets being emptied out, People talking about a brain drain in certain communities you go to, and a, a, a real sense that uh, people are upset and they don't feel included in uh, an economic vision. And then we could say, well, look, Donald Trump's saying that uh, his solution to this is to stop Mexicans from coming into America and to uh, blast uh, off against the Chinese tariffs, but did that really rebuild Galesburg, Illinois? Did that really bring manufacturing back? President Biden. Intel is investing 20 billion dollars in Ohio that's revitalizing the entire state. 7,000 manufacturing jobs, 3,000 construction jobs. You know, our messaging is in his work. I mean, if Donald Trump had gotten 20 billion dollars into Ohio, the whole country would think he single-handedly revitalized the Midwest. And yet not enough people know about what we're doing. But I I guess I would start by saying that the acknowledging people's fears, acknowledging people's anger, Understanding that some of that anger is legitimate and then arguing on the plane of who's going to have real better solutions to improve their lives uh, rather than just starting off with uh, a dismissal uh, of people who uh, voted for Trump, which I just don't think is ever going to win over many people who we can win over.
1: Another question from the audience. Uh, Representative, digital technology is a wonderful tool uh, used for education, work and employment. However, with smartphones, it seems to be used for gossip and now lots of creative ways to to gamble your money. How do we increase the first you know, positive and decrease the second negative?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think these are the balancing issues that we need. I mean, it's similar to the analogy of the printing press. It was used initially for pamphlets that were basically gossip and spe- spreading rumors and lies. Uh, and then we started to figure out how do we use it for more uh, thoughtful means as well. I think with technology, there has to be a balance. I mean, uh, you know, I'm way too addicted to my phone, and I put my phone down usually when I'm interacting with my family, or if I'm in a meeting, I never pick it up. I think every one of us has to ke- keep our own uh, boundaries on what that is, where technology is appropriate, where it's not appropriate. One of the places I think it doesn't work uh, is in, in lots of education settings. I, I don't think you can just have the same experience zooming in uh, to a classroom, as you can being physically present uh, in a classroom. And yet, there are ways probably technology can augment the educational experience by giving people access to supplemental courses or materials. So, I think, and the people who are experts in the education field, but I think it's for them to figure out what is, and, and for all of us, what is this balance? Where, where should we use technology? Uh, where is it appropriate not to use technology? Uh, and, and, and how do we do it in ways that are uh, enhancing and, and not just addictive?
1: Well, the audience has really put some thought into these questions. And this one here is uh, is a good one. Which nation do you believe has and it's multi so will wow. start yeah. Which nation do you believe has handled deindustrialization? Well, what industrial policy did they follow? Which our country can learn from? And lastly, what can we learn from countries like Japan where industrial policy has largely failed? And I think maybe the spin I would put on this question. Um, Michael Porter at, you know, a long time. Harvard yeah. Porter's five forces uh, writes about innovation clusters. Right. And looking at those areas of the world, uh, Silicon Valley, obviously, where they have been able to build ecosystems that drive innovation and economic output and you know, hopefully equity as well. Uh, where where do you see that being done well? Of course, we, used, we
2: did it well with Hamilton and FDR. Right? We created the industrial base in America, and I think other people have copied that model, which is industry working uh, with labor and government and, uh, and universities. In South Korea, uh, the, the research shows that they've done it very well over uh, 20, 30 years in creating leading technology industries uh, Taiwan, semiconductor manufacturing, other technology industries, uh, Germany, uh, with both uh, what they've done in uh, high wage manufacturing, but also uh, in what they've done uh, for the service workers and having more bargaining power, uh, having higher wages. Uh, now, I wouldn't just copy their models. I still think there's an extraordinary amount that our country gets right. There's a reason the most innovative companies happen to be in the United States and not in, in Europe or, or, or South Korea. There's a lot of risk-taking innovation. But when it comes to uh, a policy that can uh, re-industrialize, rebuild America, looking at South Korea or, or, uh, or Germany and saying, look, they're doing what we did in post-World War II or in World War II uh, is, is something that I think can be uh, a, a, an inspiration.
1: I'm going to keep rapid-firing. We have a lot to cover. This is from YouTube. We actually have several questions along the lines of political polarization. Uh, Congressman, how long do you see this era of polarization lasting? 2022, 2024, when does it end?
2: Wow, I, I wish I knew. But uh, I think the 20s are going to be a hard decade uh, for our country. I think the... Uh, I'm not sure the country... I, is ready. I, I, you know, I said that the, you know, we didn't, we weren't content with the Biden versus Trump in 2020. We really are just dying for another Biden versus Trump 2024 rematch. I just think the, uh, the country isn't at a point where we're still looking to to, to the future, and I think the 20s is going to be a a very tough decade for us in in figuring out uh, how we navigate issues of identity how we find commonality as Americans, how we deal with economic displacement. But what gives me hope is that the next generation, and I think as we turn the corner at the decade, I think that you have a new generation that uh, is uh, hopeful about tackling big issues like climate that doesn't see the same divisions along uh, race and gender quite as acutely, not saying it goes away, that uh, may be able to... Uh, bring us closer to a vision of a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. I I don't think it will be stopped. And I I, I say this when, you know, people get very, very down and and they think about Donald Trump. And I say, you know, when I was growing up, uh, our family, I was born in Philadelphia in 1976, and my parents are immigrants from India. Uh, It was hard to get an appointment with a staff person as a member of Congress, uh, who was a a staff person to a member of Congress. I never would have dreamed that you'd have four Indian-Americans in Congress or that you'd have a Vietnamese-American woman running for Secretary of State of Georgia. Uh, the, Trump can't stop the diversity that's oozing out of every small town, city, community across the country. That's, uh, I think, the march of American progress that FDR, that Frank, uh, Frederick Douglass talked about in Composite Nation. But the pace of it, I don't know. The harm that people can do in the process of getting there, I don't know. What I do know is when we do get there, that will be America's crowning achievement, civilizational achievement uh, to the world.
1: Is that issue, when you talk about multiculturalism, is the solution generational? Do you believe, I look at us, about the same age uh, and you know, your role as a, a leader in D.C. with certain lived experiences, a, a different age profile than many. I look at myself, you know, leading a large business group here in Silicon Valley and the way we speak about some of these issues. Do you think that this next generation of leaders is going to be able to solve this polarization? We've grown up, you know, my father born and raised the segregated South. My mom is a Caribbean immigrant, uh, West Indian from Trinidad and Tobago. And my lived experience is very different than uh, people and generations that preceded me. So are so many people that we've grown up with. So is the answer to this question that it's a generation away, given the multiculturalism we have seen in today's society, or is it deeper than that?
2: I think it's deeper than that, although I think the new generation offers hope and and promise based on the... uh, our lived experiences. I was joking with someone, I hope the baby boomers don't take this the wrong way. I said, how many presidents do you want in your generation? You know, you're not <laughs> the greatest generation. It's, uh, how many will be enough or something? But uh. at some point, uh, I think that the, the new generation is, especially the young folks who are so uh, passionate, focused on, on issues of, uh, of climate, on issues of, of, of building uh, uh, the economy, I, I, I think that, they, that we will get there. But it won't be without work. Uh, It won't be without uh, engagement uh, and uh, it certainly won't come for for, by uh, just uh, for granted.
1: Another question for you. Uh, This is from the audience. When will the FDR, uh, Roosevelt voices in the Democratic Party get a chance to speak out again?
2: Well, you know, I co-chaired. Senator Sanders's campaign, and I always used to say, you know, that you're really an FDR Democrat, not a democratic socialist. I call myself a progressive capitalist. But I tried to get him to, to to talk about FDR because I think FDR, uh, you know, even his famous speeches about the right to work and the right to a job was a right to a job, not just in the public sector but the private sector. And FDR mobilized the public sector, the private sector, uh, and communities to to build modern America. Now he He had uh you know the opportunity to do that partly because he was a great leader, but partly you know we, he faced uh, World War two and he faced a great depression and so there was a moment of of national purpose and I think the challenge for leaders today is well, how do you create that sense of national purpose to to get people to move towards those uh, those policies? Uh, the pandemic i thought provided one of those moments and You know we've done the american rescue plan the infrastructure bill we we could do more uh it's in probably a bit of a missed opportunity though we've done a lot uh but you know that is the the challenge but i do think that there's more of a recognition that um just leaving the markets to themselves to work things out with globalization uh hasn't been correct both domestically in terms of the hollowing out of the middle class and in places like China, where the theory that uh, free markets would lead to democracy hasn't quite worked out.
1: So you wrote a, a book that I, I think is a fascinating book. What do you hope that audience members, uh, people who pick up your book, will take away from it? And I, I hope folks go out and get the book. We're not trying to give anything away here. But what do you want the reader to take away from your book?
2: A hope about... Uh, the ability to to have an economic revitalization in this country. I hope that uh, past leaders have overcome much worse odds, like Frederick Douglass. I I end the book with this speech because I'm so moved by how this person who was enslaved for so many years in 1869 is defending Chinese immigrants coming to the United States and saying America is on the ascent. America is going to become this uh, multiracial, multi democracy. I mean, imagine being enslaved and then having that hope for America. So many people have had uh, that hope, and I, I think it is so within our grasp to have an economic revitalization in this country to build uh, into this multiracial, multi democracy. I'm not convinced that everything in the book is you know, the way it has to be, but if it can start a conversation about what we need to do to have economic revitalization for people and places left out, and how we can start to build uh, a, a collective purpose of, of, of what a multiracial, multiethnic American democracy looks like. Uh, that would be my hope.
1: Well, I'm trying to land this plane. I know we've got five minutes left, but we keep getting more questions. This is from YouTube, so I'm going to rapid fire right. in five minutes. Uh, why hasn't the Democratic Party heavily, in caps, invested in a mega public relations or education campaign about the core mission and focus for the working class. This is what you touch on in your book.
2: Well, there has been a disconnect, I think, with some of our policies. I think the, the policies were too uh, neglectful of, of, of jobs going offshore, or production going offshore. And I, I don't think it was intentional. I just think we didn't, we didn't quite see for years uh, how much devastation was taking place, how much... Uh, wealth inequality was increasing uh, and how much people were being deprived of their hope and aspiration that they or their kids would have a better life. Uh, there has now been a correction of that. I think President Biden uh, represents that and that uh, the future of the party represents that. But it's going to take time to earn back people's trust. And some of that I think is why I invoke Bobby Kennedy. Some of that is doing things in local communities, uh, one community at a time. So it's not just uh, here is what, you know, Ro Khanna is saying or writing about. It's here is what Intel is doing to invest in Columbus, Ohio, to create X number of jobs. And now people are seeing it with validators who aren't politicians. Uh, the more we have that, the more I think we will rebuild trust with uh, the working class that has reason to be angry uh, about what has happened.
1: I think what's so interesting about that example is you have uh, the private sector making a significant investment that is going to change the lives of, you know, many people probably across the state, not just in that community. And it's being done not at the behest of a, a government or not at the behest of a regulatory action, but it's being done because of, uh, you know, an economic, and I, I'm sure motives that are, um, that are positive there for that region. Uh, do you see more examples like that happening in the years to come?
2: I do. I mean, I think Pat Gelsinger at Intel will tell you that, you know, one of the reasons he was able to do that is in anticipation of the CHIPS Act, which is part of this competes bill, because he was able to go to his board and say, you know, there are billions of dollars of federal support for uh, being able to build plants in America. And that, in my view, is leveling the playing field because other countries are providing that kind of support. So that's an example of a public-private partnership, With local leadership that's bipartisan, I give the governor of Ohio who's a Republican credit on that issue, uh, that's worked. And that if you go there, people are talking about a new patriotism, a new revitalization. And and you can see a lot more of that, I think, with the Competes Act, encouraging that kind of uh, reinvestment across the country. But it doesn't just have to be semiconductors, steel plants. You know, if you want to do offshore wind, it's going to take five-inch steel. We don't make that in America. Why don't we? Why can't we have the government invest in plants uh, with the private sector uh, to be making steel in this country? W- why can't we have Mary Barra at GM say, if you're going to reopen a plant in Lordstown, Ohio, that's going to make electric SUVs in a plant you closed, the government will purchase some of those first plants to make it economically viable. We have to be imaginative in how we can have the government partner with the private sector, uh, partner with local community leaders to have that kind of innovation. Uh, One of the big disservices that has been done is the running down of government, the the, the sense that government doesn't uh, know what they're doing. Well, you can't believe that and believe at the same time that we have the greatest military in the world, which we do, which is largely uh, government function, or that the Internet, which was created at DARPA, was somehow not important. That was a government creation or that going to the moon uh, was unsuccessful. That was the government or the fact that the GPS was invented. That was the government. But there is such skepticism of today of the government, the delegitimization of the government. And that is a real disservice because America works best when we have the public sector working with the private sector, working with educational institutions, working with local community leaders all on the same team. And, and that's what we have to get back to.
1: Well, a fascinating conversation. And I, I have one last question. It'll give you a, a chance to make some news if you want. And actually, <laughs> we've got multiple questions online about this. Yeah. I'll just read, read this one to you. Okay. There has been talk about your future political aspirations. <laughs> what is next for Rokana? Are you running for president?
2: No, I mean, I, I think Donald Trump will be the nominee of the Republican Party. And I, I think we have to do everything possible, everything possible to make this president a success and to have him prevail over Donald Trump. Post-Trump, there will be plenty of time to think about the future. But my folk I mean, Trump rep- represents a major, major threat to the vision. And uh, right now, I fundamentally believe that uh, Biden is the best person to beat him. If not, there will be others who I would get behind. But my single criteria will be Uh, who can defeat Donald Trump in 2024. And and I'll be supporting that person. And and right now, I think it's the president.
1: Well, thank you very much, Roe, for such an insightful conversation. It gives me uh, such joy to have a civil conversation with leaders in D.C. like yourself that are committed to doing the right thing. Uh, having such a great, engaged audience. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you for the great list of questions. I did my best to get to as many of them as I could. And a shout-out to everyone on YouTube listening in. For those who are interested in more Commonwealth Club programs in the weeks and months ahead, www.commonwealthclub.org. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club. And again, thank you, Congressman.
2: Thank you, Ahmad. Really enjoyed that.